This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Ann Walthall, professor of history at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Walthall's most recent publication is Politics and Society in Japan's Meiji Restoration, A Brief History with Documents, co-authored with M. William Steele and published by Bedford in 2017. Dr. Walthall, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's my pleasure to, to talk with you. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to this. In your career, you've focused a lot on peasant protest movements, some of the, the violence of the early modern period, and especially leading up to the Meiji Restoration. So could you tell us what's going on during the Bakumatsu period at the end of the Tokugawa, particularly from the perspective of the peasants in the countryside? Well, there are very different ways to look at the peasants in the countryside. Though, as you said, the way I started out was by looking at the social movements or mass movements that you find at that time. It's very tricky because it's also linked. I mean, there are a lot of different things going on that cause unrest. And so I'll talk about that. But I also would like to talk about people in the countryside who perhaps weren't protesting or weren't going around smashing up houses, but still had their own take on what was going on. Uh, but let me talk first about popular movements. And I'm using the term popular movements because that's the term that Japanese historians use today. Uh, what they want to emphasize is that these are mass movements in that they involve not uh, farmers of a particular class, but entire villages. And these villages would include old families that trace their lineage back to before the Tokugawa period. They would include middling farmers who have enough land to survive on as long as uh, the harvest is okay. And then there would be various kinds of tenant farmers and day laborers whose livelihood, of course, is much more precarious. But in these mass uprisings, the whole village is a participant in this. And in fact, if the village does not participate as a unit in these movements, then other villages may attack it for not being a full-fledged participant. So that's one point I would like to make. The movements themselves are two sorts. They generally start off with trying to ask the ruling authorities for assistance, for aid, pointing out that we are the Lord's farmers, and therefore the Lord should care about what happens to us. Some farmers will point out that they are the foundation of the realm, which is something that the fifth shogun had said back in the early 1700s. And if they're the foundation of the realm, and they disappear, they, you know, they starve to death, and the Lord's going to starve to death too. So there's a certain amount of self-interest they're appealing to as well. What they will do then is they will create a petition with this very deferential language, but also very assertive language, saying, we're very sorry that we have to do this, but if you want us to survive, you'd better pay attention. Uh, and they go marching off to the castle with that petition. And then along the way, or after they presented the petition, they will attack wealthy people, wealthy commoners, who they feel have acted unjustly. These crowds have a very strong moral sense that people who are not helping them, who are hoarding grain, for example, who are looking after their own interest and putting their own self-interest ahead of the interest of the community, are not good people and they deserve to be punished. The punishment takes the form of, as you mentioned, uchi kawashi, are smashing and breaking, 
where they will go to a storehouse or a store or a residence and smash up as much as they can. They will break open storehouses, take out the food and goods that they find there, and trash them. The idea is not to loot. These are not looters. And in fact, crowds will often attack people they see looting because they want to emphasize that they're taking the moral high ground. Uh, and so they will smash up, they say they'll smash up the houses, they'll take the rice, they'll trample the rice in the mud, they'll pour soy sauce on it if they find soy sauce, uh, sort of make a nice mud pie out of it. Uh, and uh, then they move on to the next dwelling. If the wealthy people realize that they're in the crosshairs of this kind of uh, riot, sometimes they will start by bringing out food and feeding the poor and demonstrating that, yes, they do care about the people by presenting food and also drink. Well, sometimes drink can have the opposite effect. Uh, there were a number of these uprisings, starting from the late 18th century forward, that call upon the world renewal god, the Onaoshi god, uh, the idea being that if the bad people have their property smashed up and are forced to become good people by feeding the crowd, then that's a sign that the world renewal god is appearing in this world. There are also specific instances of world renewal when after, a, for example, in 1866 saw a really dreadful harvest, but then the next year in 1867 the harvest was good, and so people celebrated and said, look, the world god of, of world renewal has brought a bountiful world, and we should celebrate that. So that the whole idea of world renewal has a number of ambiguous characteristics, but it's usually seen as bringing a better world, at least for the moment, to help the poor. I should also mention that the biggest uprising, uh, the biggest of these mass movements, occurs in the Shogun's territory in 1867. This is in the hinterland to the capital of Edo. And in that case, you have riots that go on for over a week. Uh, and this was this had a, an impact on the shogunate because it's, it's embarrassing to have something like this erupting in your own backyard, especially when other domains are not dealing with such kind with such unrest. So it it, it has a, the effect of making the shogun's government look less legitimate than perhaps it had in the past. And so, but people have debated. Well, people will say, well, yeah, but that had nothing to do with what the shogun was doing in terms of confronting his enemies down around Kyoto, uh, and that's true, but the press was very bad. You know, the, the, the shogun's reputation suffered as a result of that movement. But what I have found, you know, I studied peasant uprisings for many years, and in fact, I just wrote an, another essay about them recently. But what I find more interesting is the whole issue of what can we say about commoner participation in the events leading up to the restoration and how does that compare with what the ruling class, the daimyo and the shogun and the uh, samurai were doing in the events leading up to the restoration? And to a certain extent, many historians, especially the historians who first started dealing with the restoration, really focused on a small group of men in the powerful domains, the southwestern domains of Choshu, Satsuma, Tosa, he's into a lesser extent, uh, who end up leading their domains against the shogunate. Or they would look at the men at in the shogunate itself, the, the Tokugawa shoguns, uh, the vassal daimyo who were supposed to support the shogun but didn't always, 
the shogun's relatives, especially the, the relatives in Mito, who uh, had their own ideas about what the shogunate should do, which wasn't necessarily helpful. So there's a lot that's been translated about what these men were writing and what these men thought should be done. Uh, but so that scene is okay. These, this is the ruling class, uh, one portion of the ruling class uh, replacing another portion of the ruling class. So it, and in fact, there was an article once which called this basically an aristocratic coup d'etat. Uh, however, I think it's worth pointing out that yes, the men who were making these political decisions are really only a very small portion of the ruling class. If we talk about the four domains, but in fact there were 280 domains, sometimes people say more like 300 domains, and these domains, most of these domains didn't know what to do. I've studied a lot about the domains in northern Japan, and they're sort of dithering, you know, well, are we, are we going to support the shogun, who's been our lord for all 260 years and has done a really good job for us? Are we going to support the imperial court? And what will that mean for us? Especially for the daimyo who got their legitimacy from the shogun, it was really tricky to figure out, well, which side are we going to fall on? And most of them did nothing. In fact, I would say that 90% of the daimyo and their retainers tried to wait it out to see which, which side was going to win. And waiting out, you know, some of them were able to just sort of sit there and say, oh, well, yeah, we support you, we support you without actually committing themselves. And it was only the domains in the north that actually had to put skin in the game and say, okay, we're going to fight on behalf of the emperor or we're going to fight for the shogun. So if you, you know, if you compare the, the large number of men in the ruling class who did nothing, the fact that the commoners were not out there waving their swords around, I think is much more similar to what the daimyo themselves were doing. And in fact, the commoners were doing a lot. They were trying to get as much information as they could. They were buying information in some cases from men who had power to make decisions. They were trying to influence these men. In some cases, they were the financial backers of these men, and they could throw their weight around in that way. They helped men when they were on the run. There was a civil war in Mito in 1864, and when the men on the losing side went racing across central Japan, across the mountains of Nagano Prefecture, trying to reach Kyoto, uh, there were men along the way who helped them, who fed them, who buried their dead, who exchanged poems with them. And so the commoners were not simply passive bystanders in all of this. They took as active a role as they could, given the politics of the time. this book, Weak Body of a Useless Woman, as kind of an example of exactly one of those people. Could you tell us a, a bit more about these peasants who aren't necessarily the ones carrying out the violent actions, such as the Uchi Kawashi or, or the Onawashi movements, the ones who are just kind of in the countryside? What, what's the impact of the restoration on them and what agency do they have leading up to the restoration? Um, that's an interesting question. These families are often called rural entrepreneurs or gono. They were families that had oftentimes monopolized or tried to monopolize political power in their villages as village headmen or advisors to the village headman. 
They were usually landlords, uh, so they had a lot of agricultural land that they could farm out. Farm To a certain extent, they farmed themselves. To a certain extent, they had tenant farmers. But they were also heavily involved in cottage industries and marketing. So in the area around Osaka, they would be the middlemen between the cotton growers and the merchants in Osaka who would be buying the cotton. Uh, in the Ina Valley, starting fairly late, actually, after the opening of the ports in 1859, silk production takes off, and they are the ones who are encouraging the farmers around them to raise silkworms and then spin, spin silk thread, and then they, they act as middlemen in marketing the silk thread in Yokohama and places like that. So that in the time leading up to the restoration, they're very much involved in commercial activities and the development of a commercial economy. Some of them make it through the restoration and continue along those lines. Others discover that they really don't have enough capital to invest in expensive machinery that would improve silk spinning, for example, the filiatures that are being bought from Europe at that time. Uh, and so they end up staying in their village and sometimes going broke. Uh, there are a number of men, uh, Bill Steele has studied and I have studied, who get involved in one crazy idea after another, and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. Now, these are the men, of course, oftentimes who are politically aware of what's going on. When the government first announces prefectural assemblies in the 1870s, they are the ones who are running for office. In fact, they're the only ones who can run for office because there were restrictions on who could vote. You had to have a certain amount of property in order to vote uh, and run for office. And so they can vote, they can run for office. And then in 1889, when the first diet is established, they are able to run for those offices as well and become diet members. And some, in some cases, they are very active in promoting civilization and enlightenment in their villages, starting village schools, for example, uh, trying to bring in the latest inventions that they've seen in the cities to, their, to the countryside. Uh, by the late 19th century, they're starting to send their children to be educated in Tokyo rather than simply in the village schools. Uh, so many of them are very progressive. Some of them are not and think that all this introduction of Western things is just a bunch of foolishness and that Japan should really stick to being Japan and, and not go aping the West. But those are really in a minority, I think. Most of these people I mean, Taseko is very definitely in a minority because she does not like the West. She doesn't like seeing Western ships. She doesn't like seeing Western saddles. She doesn't think much of Western-style food or clothing or anything along those lines. But she is, and it's awful, it's awfully easy to see her and people like her as representative of these very conservative country bumpkins. And to a certain extent, they were very conservative, but they weren't necessarily the majority of people in the countryside. So then we can think of a, a lot of this modernization during the Meiji period as being the product as much of a grassroots movement as something that is imposed top down from the government. Yes, absolutely. There was a famous Japanese historian named Yasumaru Yoshio, who in a book on Japan's modernization and popular thought, argued that if you're going to understand the Meiji Restoration and understand Japan's ability to modernize in the late 19th century, you have to look at where the people were, especially where the farmers were. Uh, he argues that they developed something he called 
conventional morality, which emphasized diligence and fortitude and trust. And he said those virtues are really what makes it possible for Japan to industrialize and that you can't look at just the top of society and see that is creating Japan's economic gains. You have to look at the bottom because actually that's where the most of the people are. And you mentioned before this narrative that the Meiji Restoration was really an aristocratic revolution, something that's happening within a very small percentage of aristocratic samurai in, in Japan. And at the same time, there's this narrative of, of the Uchikawashi and the Yonaoshi riots as being one half of this Nayu Gaikan formulation, right? the internal troubles and foreign threats that topple the, the Tokugawa regime. And with that in mind, is it fair to, or, or what are your thoughts on this kind of textbook narrative that the Meiji Restoration is something that is essentially a political revolution imposed from the top down? What would be the bottom-up aspect of the Restoration itself? Well, I think that the bottom-up is a little, you know, as I say, it's harder to define, but it has a lot more to do with the development of commerce and the determination of Japanese commoners to make a buck wherever they can. There's a new book by Simon Partner called A Merchant's Tale, which argues that you can say that the major restoration was simply a political change at the top, but the kinds of transformations that were taking place in society between 1859 and, say, 1880, owe a lot more to transformations in commercial relations, and especially the impact of foreign trade and how Japanese merchants are dealing with that in Yokohama and to a lesser extent, the other port cities, Kobe, for example, and things like that. I mean, because there, there isn't also an argument, you know, that these political changes at the top didn't have that much to do with people's lives, except for the institution of compulsory primary education and conscription that people continued to dress very much the way they had and perform the same rituals that they had. And, and But other people are saying, no, in fact, you've got a lot more engagement with the outside world than there was before 1853, for example. It's really in 1853 when these many of the rural entrepreneurs get involved in debating politics and what should happen. And they make, you know, they have proposals that they're sending to their daimyo on what kind of reforms are necessary. Uh, they had ideas on what kinds of government Japan could come up with. They didn't always, you know, people didn't listen to them, but they had these ideas. But people, you know, the guys up at the top didn't listen to each other either. And many of these proposals that you're talking about are included in this fantastic new book that you've published exactly. uh, with, with yeah. Bill Steele, Politics and Society in Japan's Major Restoration and Brief History with Documents. Can you tell us about the process of producing this book and then the narrative written for the book? And then also, uh, what was the thought process behind some of these documents that you selected to include in this volume? Well, to take the last question first, our desire in, in making the selection was to show as much as possible the enormous variety of ideas and comments that people had on events and proposals of the time. Uh, and we also wanted to decenter the idea that the only thing important 
is what was going on among this small group of men at the top. Uh, so he wanted to show that even among this so-called small group of men, there were differences of opinion over what should happen. Uh, so he included a letter by Sakamoto Ryoma, for example, uh, where he talks about how he sees the future of Japan, uh, as well as, as letters by other men, such as Katsukaishu and his ideas. Uh, we also want to take a different look at the men, some of these well-known men themselves, so, for example, in the case of Fukuzawa Yukichi, uh, we took a document that shows who's, you know, Fukuzawa Yukichi is often seen as this great Enlightenment thinker who was so determined to bring Western ideas to Japan. Uh, and yet he's telling the shogun, you should make yourself king, which is a very different take on Fukuzawa as well as on what sort of advice the shogun was getting in 1867, 1868. Uh, and so that was one of the things we were trying to do. We also wanted to make sure that what the ordinary people were thinking appeared in this volume. Uh, and so we have a number of satirical poems and satirical drawings uh, showing how, and we talk about the way that commoners commented on the events of the time and how, and what these comments show about how aware they were of what was going on. You know, they're not just, they don't just have their nose to the grindstone and they're not just ignoring what the people on top are saying. They're saying, you know, you guys, you're bankrupt. You're morally bankrupt. You're politically bankrupt. And we're not, you know, we don't think much of the shogun. We don't think much of these new rulers either. And we're very suspicious that any of this is going to make a difference for us. So we also wanted to make sure that we got as many different groups represented as possible. Uh, and show, so we included some of the men who lose, like Maki Izumi, who had some fairly crazy ideas about what should happen in Japan and has this great dream where the emperor is going to come riding on a horse and leads the army against the shogun. So as I said, we tried to make it as, as varied as possible. And, and in dealing with the Boshin War, which, you know, there are people who said that the Boshin War was really a no-show, that it wasn't violent enough. There has been a long-time argument in Japanese historiography that said that the Meiji Restoration took place with so little violence that it can't really be called a revolution because revolutions have to be violent, uh, and that it was largely bloodless, that the people at the top were so afraid of what the foreigners might do that they, you know, refused to fight each other. They all sort of caved as soon as the idea of bloodshed appeared. Maybe it's just because they hadn't fought for so long that they you know, really didn't know how to use those swords anyway. Uh, and what we wanted to emphasize is that, in fact, the Meiji Restoration, the Meiji period, was born in blood, that it was really very violent. And we do that partly by looking at the Bushu outburst of 1867, where you've got people running riot in the shogun's hinterland. We also do it by looking at what happened in Aizu, at the end of the Boshin War and how men and women fought there and what that meant for notions of honor and loyalty. What does it mean to be loyal to your, loyal to your domain? And what does it mean when women try to claim that? What does it mean for masculinity when women try to claim that as well? So do you position this book as providing almost a counter narrative for students to the usual textbook narrative? Or, or what is it that you want students to get out of this textbook when they come across it in class? Well, I'm hoping that they'll understand that even a process that seems as brief and as neat and tidy 
as the Meiji Restoration, in fact, was a very was very complicated, and that there were a lot of different voices that participated in the events leading up to 1868 and in the events thereafter. Uh, so we want to make it, you know, make make it messy. <laughs> Yeah, and it's not such a, a simple success story. It's not a clean no. uh, story. And that's what often gets suggested by these narratives of the quick, painless, aristocratic revolution of the Meiji period. Yeah, and of course, the problem with that quick, painless narrative is that it then leads into oh, all these great successes of the late 19th century. And look, by the night, during World War One, Japan manages to industrialize, and it's moving on to a second phase of industrialization. And in the interwar period, you've got democracy coming along, and you've got people, more and more men are voting. You know, you get universal male suffrage by 1924, I think it is. Uh, and isn't everything looking just great, and Japan is becoming this modern capitalist democracy, and then all of a sudden, boom, you hit 1931. And so it's very, if you see the Meiji Restoration as this tiny little bundle leading upward from one success to another, it makes it very difficult to explain what happened to Japan in the modern period, in the modern in, in the 20th century, I should say. So, with that in mind, when we look back, this being the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary of the major restoration, when we look back on it now, what should we point out? What should we look for, and how does that change our perceptions for maybe even Japan today? Well, I think again, I think it's important to decenter the restoration by looking at what's going on in the provinces. You know, the Japanese in the Tokugawa period, many Japanese generated tons and tons and tons of documents. And a remarkable number of those still remain. And so you can go beyond what the four great domains were doing to look at what was going on in the Northeast, to look at what was going on along the Japan Sea, to see what people were doing around Osaka and Shikoku outside of Tosa. Uh, and study how the restoration occurred in their locality. Uh, there have been some wonderful studies on transformations in religious practices, for example. There's one called the Landscape of the Gods that looks at what happens to a major pilgrimage site, the site of Konkira, in the years after the restoration, when the new government decides it's going to separate Buddhism and Shinto, and the kind of impact this has on a pilgrimage site, which up until that time had been both Buddhist and Shinto. You know, there was sort of a symbiotic relationship where you would go to a structure and you really couldn't tell if, if you were worshipping a Buddhist deity or worshipping a Shinto god. Uh, and after the restoration, the, the government says, no, this has got to start. We've got to separate all of this out. And so you end up with the shrine up at the top and the temple someplace else. And of course, there's a lot of fighting among the various priests over Whose mountain is this anyway? And what are we, if we're going to give up our structure over here, what do we get in return? There's a movement by the Buddhist temples to try to say, but listen, you know, we've been at the center of Japanese religious life for uh, over a thousand years. You can't just get rid of us. Think of all those family graves that are buried in our graveyards. Think of all the memorial services that we perform. Look at the imperial household. It's you can't talk about rituals in the imperial household without bringing in Buddhism. And also, we good, we're good people and we, we promote morality. And without us teaching Japanese people to be good, loyal subjects, they'll end up becoming Christians. You certainly don't want that. 
Uh, so there are lots of different ways you can study this period besides just looking at these politics at the top. And I think it's really more fun to look and see what's happening in the li daily lives of people and in terms of what they're supposed to believe and what they, how they're supposed to act. Is there any last words that you'd like to say about the Meiji period? Yeah, the Meiji Restoration is a real milestone in Japanese history, but I hope I've given you the idea that there's still a certain amount of debate over what exactly it means. And I hope that kind of debate will continue because that's what keeps history fresh and interesting. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening. <laughs>